turn with me to Isaiah 40. Hopefully everybody got an outline on your way in. Isaiah 40. Started it last week. We were in kind of a go slow now to go fast later kind of a mode. I'm going to try to pick up the pace a little bit tonight while still taking time to savor what the Lord has for us. We left off last week in verse 11, but let's back up a little bit to get some context. And by back up a little bit, I mean keep a finger in Isaiah 40, but flip forward to Jeremiah 25. The second portion of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, we said last week, has Isaiah speaking not to his contemporaries, not to people alive at the same time that he was, but rather speaking forward in time, more than a century forward in time, to those carried off by the Babylonians, carried off to Babylon to live in exile, and to their descendants. We talk about the Babylonian exile. In a sense, we could almost say exiles because the captivity happened in three waves, beginning in 607 B.C. and continuing until 586 B.C. 586 is the, is the year that, that resonates with us because that was the final assault of the Babylon, Babylonian army, the destruction of the temple, really the leveling of the city, the attack that left the city of Jerusalem in ruins. The problem is if we fixate on 586 B.C., and that's the only year that we hang on to, then we get to 537 B.C., when Cyrus the Persian says, okay, Ezra and everybody else, it's okay to return. Well, then we've got a math problem, don't we? Because Jeremiah 25, God gives the length of time of the exile. Jeremiah 25, you turned there. I didn't. Now I did. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim the king, I'm sorry, Jehoiakim the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that's 604 B.C. Go down to verse 3. I've spoken to you, middle of the verse, rising early and speaking, but you've not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you've not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, repent now, everyone, of his evil way and his evil doing, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I'll not harm you. Except you've not listened to me, verse 7, says the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not heard my words, behold, I'll send and take all of the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against the nations all around, and will utterly destroy them. 
Make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I'll take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. God said through Isaiah, you're going to serve Babylon. You're going to be carried off to exile. In Jeremiah, there's a time frame attached to it. 70 years. More than a generation. Almost two generations. Long enough to forget God. Long enough to forget his promises. Long enough to despair. To give up. So it's to those people living in that 70-year sentence, especially, I would think, to the second generation born in captivity, born into that exile, that Isaiah speaks. They know why they are where they are. They know it's a function of God's judgment. And Isaiah, Jeremiah also, write to encourage them to remind them that these years that they're enduring, this season that they're in, will have an end. That's the message we began together last week in Isaiah 40, where God says in verse 1, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the immediate, not immediate, that's the wrong word, short-term fulfillment of that prophecy is God's people delivered from exile, from the Babylonian exile. But last week we recognized there's a long-term fulfillment in play as well, right? Because Israel, verse 3, doesn't heed the words of John the Baptist. Verse 3, John the Baptist came. He was the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But Israel and Israel's leaders especially didn't listen. So in 70 AD, what happens? Once again, Israel's out to exile. Didn't recognize her king. Instead of embracing her king, handed him over to be crucified. So that adds a second layer, a second dimension to Isaiah's prophecies, to his promises. Scroll down to verse 10, where we left off. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He'll feed his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs with his arms, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. And no doubt those words were comforting, encouraging, strengthening to the Jewish people in captivity in Babylon. God's going to come for us. God's going to save us. God's going to lead us out of here. Except nothing that happens in the 6th century B.C. can possibly be construed as fulfilling what we just read. And nothing that's happened since then has fulfilled what we just read. Could have. Jesus was ready to fulfill those verses, wanted to, 
was willing to. Luke 13, Matthew 23, parallel passages, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, we were this close. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you in my arms. The way that Isaiah describes. I wanted to. I was there. I was ready. You were not willing. And so once again, Israel is sent into exile. Once again, Israel saw the destruction of the walls and the temple of Jerusalem. Once again, the city was leveled. Once again, Israel waits for her Messiah, this time with no calendar. This time with no timetable. No timetable, at least, until a coming world leader strikes a bargain, enters into a truce, a covenant with Israel. Then the timing begins. But it's to both of those peoples, through both of those lenses, that Isaiah speaks. He speaks to the exile of 607 to 537 BC. He speaks to the exile that began in 70 AD and continues. And he speaks especially to the exile that will, will begin, well, that will continue in the tribulation, to the persecution, to the persecuted of the tribulation. He speaks of the deliverance of Babylonian near and also the deliverance from Babylon far because Babylon is the seat of government of Antichrist. Picking up in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. The Holy Spirit is emphasizing to God's people in both exiles, past and future. This is God we're talking about. God who is more than capable of fulfilling his promises. Remember back in verse 6 and verse 7, Isaiah alludes to the despair that the people will experience in exile. Cry out. God says in verse 6, and the, and the response back is, why bother? The response back is, what's the point? Israel's sentiment is, we're done for anyway. It doesn't really make a difference. Not so. God, through Isaiah, is reminding them, remember who it is you're crying out to. The one who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. The rhetoric here reminds us a little bit of what other book of the Bible. Sounds a little like Job. What would that be, Jobian? Sounds like Job. God's saying, remember, you're, you're crying out to the Almighty One, the All-Powerful One. Verse 13, remember you're crying out to the All-Knowing One. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice, who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer, of course, is no one. It's a rhetorical question. Who can teach God, counsel God? No one. God has no need for counsel. God, God possesses all knowledge. God is the source of all wisdom. He doesn't need wisdom. 
And we can hear the voice of the captives, can't we? The voice of those carried off in the 6th and 7th centuries B.C. The voice of those persecuted and oppressed by a future Babylon with zeal and humanity that makes the Nazis look gentle and kind by comparison. But who can come against this great power? Who can come against our oppressors? And God says, hello, have we met? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. Take one of those Home Depot pails. Does one drop of water, plus or minus, make any difference? Is it perceptible? Is it significant? Is it in any way? Look, the nations are counted as the small dust on the scales. You go to the butcher, you go to the deli, you're weighing out pounds of meat. Wait, 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 polish that scale first. There's a couple grains of dust. I don't want to have to pay for those grains of dust. No, you don't bother. What difference does it make? It's not measurable. That's how small the nations are in my eyes, says God. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. God moves the earth around. He rearranges the continents as he sees fit. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. The thing we know about Lebanon, the thing that Lebanon was renowned for were its forests, right? The cedars of Lebanon sent downstream so that they could be used as timber to wall the temple. No finer timber to be found anywhere. God is saying, set the whole nation of Lebanon ablaze. Light all of its forests on fire. And there wouldn't be enough timber in the forests. There wouldn't be enough animals living in the forests to make a suitable offering for me. Make all of Lebanon an altar for me. It wouldn't be enough. That's how great I am. All nations before him, Isaiah says, are nothing. And they're counted by him less than nothing and worthless. There's an echo of Genesis 1 verse 2 here. It's not as obvious in the English. It jumps out in the Hebrew. Genesis 1-2 where we read the earth was without form and void. That's the language here. Nothing and worthless, without form and void. Until God did something with it, there was nothing to it, is Isaiah's point. God made the world, and he made the people of the world. Certainly, the God who did that is greater than the world he made, or the people that he populated the world with. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? Step back, God is saying. Who's like me? Who will you compare me to? It's like the old joke. How's an elephant like a grape? They're both purple except for the elephant. There's really no comparison there. Except that the comparison between God and anything else is even greater. There's no one, there's nothing worth mentioning in the same breath. 
There's no basis for comparison. There's no ruler created that you can use to measure the creator. God is singular. He's unique. But that doesn't stop people from trying, does it? Verse 19, God continues, The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever's to impoverish for such a contribution, the person who can't afford an idol made out of gold or silver, chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful woodman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Arnold Furchtenbaum in his commentary on this, these verses is a little snarky. He says, whoever's too impoverished, whoever's too poor for a gold or silver idol chooses a tree that will not rot because it's not nice for our gods to rot. <laughs> he seeks for himself a skilled workman to prepare a carved image that will not topple over because it's not nice for gods to fall over. The point that God is making is what are they thinking with these idols made with hands? Whether with wood or silver or gold, what are they thinking? Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? We're talking about the eternal one, the pre-existent one. The one who always was, who always will be. In verse 22, we're talking about the transcendent one. He who sits above the circle of the earth. Who looks at its inhabitants and sees grasshoppers. We're talking about the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. This is God who breathed the universe into existence. This is God greater than the expanse he created. What does this God have to fear from kings and princes? Answer, verse 23, nothing. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. God is turning the words of the people back on them. They said, why should we cry out when people are just stubble before God? We're like grass, we we, we bloom out, we're green for a season, and then we wither in the wind. God is turning that idea back on them, and he says, who do you think breathes the wind? Why are you afraid of nations when I'm the one who breathes the wind and withers them at my will? Step back, God says. Who is like me? Who will you compare me to? Another reference <coughs> to Genesis 1-2 is lurking here. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Nothing and useless. Emptiness and voidness. Resonates Genesis 1-2, the condition of the earth before God got busy with plants and animals and people. 
God is saying, I planted them. The kings, the rulers that you're so afraid of, I made them, I planted them, and I can harvest them. It's what used to be called the Bill, uh, the Bill Cosby rule. Before we couldn't talk about Bill Cosby anymore. Remember the Bill Cosby rule? I brought you into this world, I can take you out. That's what God is saying. I created them, I can remove them. And when I do, he's saying, verse 24, it will be as if they never existed. My pencil, God is saying, it has an eraser. And we read this and we nod and we say, yep, yeah, that, that's the God we worship. That's, that's the God we were singing about a moment ago. But how often do we pause and meditate on his greatness? His giganticness. How often do we just marvel at it? Not, not as, a, as an antecedent, not as preparation to God, I'm going to recite your greatness because I'm going to ask a really big thing of you next. <laughs> but just, God, you're, you're so you. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Think about how true it is. God's not just greater than any king. He's greater than all the kings put together. He's not just greater than the greatest, most brilliant mind in the world. He's more brilliant than the sum of all of the brilliance of the world. God doesn't think faster than a supercomputer. He thinks faster than all of the computational power of the universe all run together. We could keep going. We could keep going. But God says, don't bother. Think bigger. Verse 26, lift your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Don't restrict yourself. Don't don't confine yourself to thinking of things on earth that God is greater than. Think about the universe. Who's created these things? The galaxies, the stars, the solar systems. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. He put the stars in the sky and he calls them by name, we sing. Think about the size of our solar system. How long it took Voyager 2 traveling through space to just traverse our solar system. And how long it's going to take before it gets to the next solar system. How many solar systems in our galaxy? How many galaxies in our universe? Current estimates with the latest telescopes that NASA has launched the number of stars in the universe, 200 billion trillion. 200 billion trillion. And God is saying, I created all of them. Named all of them. You remember a few years ago, the International Star Registry? You could send in 20 bucks or whatever it is and get a star named after you. And God is saying, don't bother. I already named them. I mean, you can call it Patrick if you want. 
I've already got a name for it. One of the amazing things about God, okay, there's nothing about God that's not amazing, but one of the things verse 26 highlights, the more we study God, the more amazing God gets. Because in Jesus' day, fast forward 700 years from the time that Isaiah wrote this, in Jesus' day, they said, ah, there's a couple thousand stars. 2,000, 2,200, 2,400, they quibbled, you know, plus or minus 10%. It's a couple thousand stars. Today, 200 billion trillion. God just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes. How different God is than most things we study. How different God is than most things we learn. Think about the last time you started a job. Initially, wow, this is, this is pretty big. There's a lot to learn here. But after a couple days, maybe a couple weeks, you know what? I think I've got my arms around this. And then, and then there was another whole layer. Then, then someone took the training wheels off. Somebody opened up the door and you said, okay, this is, this is more than I thought. But after a couple more weeks, a couple more months, you started to wrap your arms around it. After a while, you said, okay, I, I, I think, I've, I think I, I'm pretty much in control of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep getting better. There's areas I can get more efficient at. Always something new to learn, but, but 80% of it I, I, I mostly have mastered. We're never at that point with God, are we? It's the opposite of that, really. The more we know, the more we know we don't know. The don't know that we don't know box just gets getting bigger and bigger. And we can tell because the know that we don't know box gets bigger and bigger. Think about the Bible. Think about the Bible. By definition, limited because it exists in three and a half space. Length, height, width, half, half a dimension of time. It exists in our space-time continuum. It's more limited than God, by, by definition, right? And yet, isn't it your experience with the Bible that you more that you read it, the more you see there is? The more layers you discern, the more you realize there's layers that I haven't even begun to unearth yet? Halfway through Isaiah, I think I said last week, I had this growing burning in my heart to go back and start again. <laughs> because I know more now than when I started, and by the time we're done, I'm going to know more still. And I suspect it would be that way if I did nothing but teach Isaiah for the rest of my life. And that's one book. Verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? God... Has, 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 has taken up the part of litigator here along the way in these verses. He's in the courtroom building his case, as we see him do from time to time, especially in the prophetic books. And having done so, he's, he's presented himself. He's, he's entered into evidence. I'm the all-knowing one. I'm the all-wise one, the all-present one, the all-powerful one, the almighty one. And he's asking now, does anyone dispute this? These are the facts. I don't think they're in dispute, are they? Does anyone dare argue? 
Do you have any doubt? Does anyone have any questions for me? Then why, verse 27, then why do you speak the way that you do? If everything I just said is true, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my just claim is passed over by my God. God knows that this is going to be Israel's lament in exile. He knows that it's going to be Israel's complaint when they're in the Babylonian captivity, those 70 years. He knows it's going to be Israel's lament during the tribulation, especially the last three and a half years. They're going to cry out, how is this fair? God, how can you let this happen? Are you not paying attention or do you just not care? His answer, verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. The creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. Sounds like God is repeating himself. Because he said something very much like this back in verse 21, didn't he? And, and sometimes God repeats himself, but he never does it without purpose. Look back at verse 21. Quick compare and contrast. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. What's different in verse 28? God invokes his name. Lord, when we see it in small capitals, we know as a placeholder for YHWH, the Tetragamatron, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. That's significant. God's saying what he said before, yes, but he's saying it with emphasis. He's saying you of all people should know this. The world should know this. All the peoples of the world should know who I am. That's Paul in Romans 1, right? Creation testifies to God's existence, to God's greatness. But to Israel, God says, you particularly should know that I'm my almighty God. Why? Because I'm your God. I've revealed myself uniquely to you. I've been to you, your God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of Moses and Joshua. I'm the God of David. You should know who I am. And you should know of all the things that I am. I'm the one who keeps his promises. I'm Yahweh, the promise keeper. When God uses Yahweh to refer to himself, check this out. He's referring to himself as God, the keeper of covenants, the keeper of promises, especially those having to do with Israel. I'm coming for you, God says in verse 28, because I promised that I would. In the meantime, verse 29 until I come for you? He says, I'm also with you. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Seventy years is a long time. 
Seven years of tribulation will be a long time, really three and a half years, but it's going to seem like 70 times seven for those dwelling in it. What's God's encouragement? Two things, wait and rely. Wait and know that I'm coming. Wait and rely on me, know that I'm with you. Verse 31, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. The strongest among you, if they try to hold on in their own strength, it won't be enough. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who look to me for strength will find it, God says. They shall mount up with, like, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, walk and not faint. I'm coming, God says. Eagle here is a reference, you know this, to Exodus 19, verse 4. When God refers to the Exodus, he says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God's invoking the Exodus. I've delivered you from captivity once. I'm going to do it again. In the meantime, I'm with you. And he invokes the eagle again. This time it's a reference to Psalm 103. 103 verse 5, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And turning to Psalm 103, recognizing that that's the reference, should cause us to slam on the brakes and say, wait, God is saying more than he's saying. I mean, not really, God is saying exactly what he's saying, but he's saying more than is immediately obvious because what else is in psalm 103 now that god has pointed us there bless the lord O my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name bless the lord O my soul and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquities who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from destruction who crowns you with loving kindnesses and tender mercies who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. Skip down to verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as, far as, the, as, far, for as, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. What did God just say? With a reference, by invoking the eagle, God broadened his promise to Israel, didn't he? to Israel, to Judah in captivity, to Israel yet future, persecuted, oppressed, attacked, almost annihilated by Antichrist. God said, I'm going to save you, not just physically. I'm going to save you spiritually. I'm going to save you eternally. I'm going to deliver you not just from your enemy Babylon, at Babylon, old Babylon coming. I'm going to deliver you from your enemies of sin and death and Satan. Just as he has for us. 
wheels within wheels. So what's the takeaway for us? As we wrap up on a Wednesday night, I don't know, where, where do you start? <laughs> you know, there's a school of thought among pastors that says, don't teach application, don't share application. Observe, interpret, leave the application as an exercise between each person listening and God the Holy Spirit. Because there's one interpretation, there's thousands upon thousands of applications. Let God speak one specifically, uniquely to each person. I don't particularly agree with that, you might have noticed. But a passage like that, I'm sympathetic, a passage like this, I'm sympathetic to it. I mean, where do you start? I think you start with the gospel. Every time I see the gospel presented alongside the enormity of God, the way it is in these passages, and even before we got into the word, the way that, that, that our time of worship was reminding of us of that. If there was one survivor left in Babylon at the end of that 70 years, God, who created stars and galaxies, would have come for that one survivor. If there was one believer left at the end of the tribulation, if the believing, believing remnant of Israel at the end of the tribulation was one soul, Jesus would return to liberate that one soul. God, who created the universe and everything in it, if you or I were the only person in it, Jesus would have come and died on the cross for us. Whenever I see the, the enormity of God and the gospel placed alongside, that's where my mind goes, how great is God's love? That the all-knowing one, the almighty one, the all-present one, the all-powerful one died for me. The other place I go, not the other place, an other place. Give me five minutes, I'll come up with ten other places, but, but one other place I go. Is I think that God's words to Israel in exile are his words to the church in these last days. I was talking to a brother recently. He said, I don't think God can let it go much further. I said, what do you mean? He said, the rapture's got to be close. How much, how much worse can things get before God says, it's time. I, I can't let my people suffer anymore. And I, I, I didn't agree, and I don't agree. Because A, we don't know. And because B, imminence. The doctrine of imminence says that God could come at any time. Jesus could return for his church at any time. Could have happened five minutes ago, five years ago, 50 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,500 years ago. The doctrine of eminence, and we've talked about this, says that every generation should look at the world around them and say, yeah, yeah, it's time. Regardless of what's going on in the world, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. So saying God isn't going to let things 
get worse. I, I can't get there biblically. A, Jesus says the church will have tribulation. So the church going through tribulation, it's on both sides of the equation. Cancel, cancel. <laughs> it doesn't really tell us anything other than we're the church. And the church going through tribulation has been most of the church through most of church history. We've got a warped perspective because we live in 21st century America. One of the most benign places and times to be the church in the history of church. Most believers, for most of the history of the church, have had it much worse than us. Things would have to get much worse in the United States for us to approach a good day in many countries of the world. But here's the other thing I can't help but notice, and the thing that, that our passage tonight reminds me of. God uses times of waiting to purify his people, right? God uses times of waiting to purify his people. That's not a thing that will be true in the kingdom. We're talking about pre-millennial kingdom Israel, so there's no comparison there. But God is God. And his methodology is often consistent. He changes not. And he uses times of waiting as a crucible. My application? And we do all get to walk away and find our own. More than one, take two or three. My application tonight is if God doesn't tarry and if the rapture doesn't happen next Tuesday, and if persecution does arrive upon our shores, because we haven't seen it yet, a little bit of oppression around the edges, along the coasts, maybe. Persecution, we're not there yet. But if Jesus does tarry, I'm going to keep Isaiah 40 close. I'm going to keep verses 28 to 31 where I can find them. I'm going to memorize them just in case they take the Bible out of my hands. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like, with wings like eagles, even in persecution. They shall run and not be weary, even in tribulation. They shall walk and not faint, no matter what this world brings against them. Jesus, we pray that you'd help us take those verses to heart and hold those verses in our heart. And even today, when we are able seemingly to do for ourselves, when the work of our hands still seems to produce profit, when we can work ourselves, think ourselves, spend ourselves out of apparent trouble, Lord, open our eyes to how illusory that is. 
You are the keeper of the flock. You are the one who feeds the sheep. You are the one who defeats the enemy. You are the one who preserves and protects. Even before dark days come, Lord, teach us to treasure these words.